I'm having a lot of fun. I hope you are too. Welcome. I know some of you have, uh, have come for the first time today, and we're just delighted you're here. And for everyone else, welcome back. Um, I know I say it often, but I, I couldn't help but I just, I'm like overflowing. I love being your pastor. I love being a part of this. I just, I'm, I feel so blessed to just even, you know, be able to come. And uh, I'm so honored to serve with you guys. Just so honored and so blessed as I watch you serve and labor and pour yourself out and give and witness and disciple and obey and walk with God and stay on track with your marriages and keep giving yourself to your kids and to your jobs and to the community. And um, I just feel so, uh, so thankful to God for you guys. Thank you. I also want to say that uh, you guys are way too encouraging. It's like I, I'm, I'm like I'm, I wish every pastor was, uh, could experience the blessing that I have just being friends with you guys. So thank you. Um, I want to share that uh, just a couple of words about our, our friend Minnie, Vea. And uh, Minnie weighed probably about 90 pounds soaking wet, and, uh, but she was mighty in prayer. And uh, through prayer, she basically uh, threw a rope around Becky and my family and me in New York and dragged us all the way over here kicking and screaming 10 years ago. In fact, it was 10 years to this very day that we had our first service here. And, um, and Minnie died uh, just a day before our 10th anniversary here. And uh, we had the privilege, and John, her son, is here, a regular part of our, our fellowship. And uh, he had called me, uh, I guess, yesterday. Was it yesterday or two days ago? called me two days ago, yeah, on Friday, and uh, let us know that Minnie was really struggling and that she uh, looked uh, like she wasn't going to be around much longer, and so he gave us the privilege of coming down, and by the time I got there, because we had come from doing all the VBS here, uh, the room was already filled with people from our church who love Minnie, and uh, we got to talk with her and laugh with her and probably helped her a little bit because she was on morphine, she, probably almost anything we said she thought was funny, but... Uh, but but we, we recounted the past, and we got to have something that not everyone has the privilege of experiencing. In, in essence, we had kind of a eulogy right there for her. And we went around the room, and we got to share our stories about the impact that Minnie had had on her life. And she kept sharing uh, the following words that I want to share with you, because as we would talk, and, and we would sing some hymns, and we would sing some praise songs and read the scripture, she just kept saying these words, and and um, uh, Michelle Stokes wrote them down for me because she, she was there right next to uh, Minnie's bed at the time. And this is what Minnie kept saying over and over. She said, there, there are no words, no thoughts that it can express how wonderful our God is and how great his love is for us. And, and it took her about three or four breaths to get this out each time, but she just kept saying it over and over and over that words cannot express how great our God is and how great his love for us is. And as I was talking to her, I asked her, I said, Minnie, you may, not be, uh, you may not be here on Sunday, and you may be with the Lord already at that time. What would you want me to tell the church uh, in your behalf if you were to speak to them on Sunday? And this is what she said. She said, worship God with all your might. That's what she wanted. I don't know. I didn't even tell you guys that, but I felt like God did something in our worship today where we were worshiping a little bit more aggressively than we normally do. And, and Minnie, uh, I believe, is probably pretty stoked right now. <laughs> she, if she can hear us, and which she may be able to, uh, but the fact that we're worshiping with all our might, that's what she said to do. After her 85 years 
and her, the, most of her life walking with the Lord, her desire is that we would worship God all of our might. And so uh, we've lost a great servant, a great prayer warrior. It was her custom to pray between three to four hours a day. And um, uh, she was a mighty woman of faith, a pillar in this church. And we're going to miss her dearly, uh, but we're very grateful to her. And I'm also grateful to you, Johnny. That was really <laughs> nice of you, man. You're my friend. Um, I want to have you turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 22. We're going to continue our study on the topic of heaven. And, uh, man, I'm just getting more excited every week as I study and as I prepare these messages. And I'm praying that today's will be an encouragement to you, that it will inspire you to, uh, to thought, to meditation on the things of God, that it will motivate you to walk closely with the Lord, that it will give you a heart to, to be pure, to not waste any time. I had a brother come up to me before the service and he said, with all the things happening in the Middle East, I realize the time is close. I can't afford to waste any more time. And I think that's a good word for all of us. We can't afford to waste any time uh, because the time is close for the coming of Christ. In Revelation chapter 22, I want to read the first six verses. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Father, we want to thank you for this time to gather this morning, and I pray that you'd bless your word. And Father, I've prepared, but God, I'm looking to you for strength and for the right words. God, I'm looking to you for power. God, I'm looking to you to bring about a transformation in our thinking and in our minds, our understanding of the, the kingdom to come, and also, God, that you might turn our hearts more fully to you than ever before. Oh, God, how we're looking forward to the kingdom, how we're looking forward to being in your presence, how we're looking forward to being finally free and redeemed. And God, until that time, you have work for us to do, and I pray that we would find ourselves busy about your business and that this message might prove to advance your cause for your glory and your praise. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. In our study over the last two weeks, we have been considering this wonderful topic of, of heaven. And in discussing it, we, we began our series with a discussion of the misconceptions that we have about heaven. Why we have these kind of bizarre thoughts about heaven being some kind of a a, a cloudy place with just Gates and Peter there standing uh, ready to hear the, the newest and the latest joke about how to get into heaven. But, but heaven is so much different than that, and we've talked about that. We dealt with the misconceptions and why we have them. We dealt last week with the, with the fact that heaven is not necessarily a single static location, but heaven is wherever God is. 
And we talked about the past heaven, uh, the place that the Bible refers to as Abraham's bosom in the place called Sheol, uh, divided into two compartments. Abraham's bosom where the believers of the Old Testament went and then uh, the place of Gehenna, the other half, uh, where the unbelievers went. And then we talked about the present heaven, which we uh, uh, defined as the third heaven, the place outside of the envelope of our atmosphere, outside the envelope of the stars and the moon and the sun, and somewhere, as the Bible said, the heaven above the heavens, the presence of God. And then we talked about the fact that there is going to be a future, final, permanent heaven, and it's actually, to the surprise of many, on planet Earth. It's going to be a redeemed Earth. It's going to be a restored Earth. It's going to be a refreshed Earth in the way that God intended from, from the very beginning for man to experience life on this new earth, according to Revelation 21.1. And what's interesting is that we look at the, the text of Scripture, going all the way back to the first two chapters of Genesis, and then going all the way to the end of the last two chapters of Revelation, we have the bookends of God's plan. Because God's plan from the beginning was for man to dwell with God for eternity. And we're going to find that in the end... In the final pages, in the final two chapters, is that God is dwelling with man for eternity. It's God's symmetry, his perfect symmetry, bringing everything together. Everything that happens between the first two chapters and the last two chapters is the story of the fall of man and God's redemptive plan to bring man back, man and woman, back to their uh, original planned state of blessed fellowship with God. In Genesis, God planted the Garden of Eden on earth. In Revelation, we find that God brings the new Jerusalem down to earth. In Genesis, there is good gold in the land of Eden. In, <clears throat> in the book of Revelation, we find that the city itself is made of pure gold and the streets are paved with gold. In Genesis, we have the garden with a river flowing through it. In the book of Revelation, we have the river of life flowing down from the throne of God. In Genesis, uh, Eden contains the tree of life. And in Revelation, in the New Jerusalem, we find again the tree of life in the city center. In Genesis, the Garden of Eden is free from sin, death, and the curse. And in the book of Revelation, in the new city, in the New Jerusalem, in the new heaven and the new earth, the earth is free from sin and death and the curse. In Genesis, the Redeemer is promised. In Revelation, the Redeemer returns to rule and reign. In Genesis, man and woman fail to rule the earth in righteousness, and in Revelation, righteous men and women reign and rule with Christ. In Genesis, we have the story of paradise lost, and in Revelation, we have the story of paradise regained. And I believe because of these two bookends that God has planted in our hearts as his creation a nostalgia, a longing for a place we've never been. There's a sense in our hearts that we know what is good. There's a sense in our hearts that we know what is just. There's a sense in our heart that we have an idea of even what beauty is. And God has placed that all in our hearts because I believe that what we long for is what God created in the beginning and what God is going to restore and he is going to redeem and he is going to reign victorious over that creation once again. And whatever advantages were lost by the first Adam will be regained by the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And God is going to reclaim men and women for himself. And not only men and women, but all of creation will be reclaimed. Not an inch, not a millimeter of the territory of God's creation 
will be given up to the work of the enemy. Every part of it, every aspect of it will be redeemed and reclaimed by God Almighty and brought back and even beyond its original condition. This morning I want to talk to you about three aspects of the heavens, the past heavens environment, the present heavens environment, and the future heavens environment. Some of this will be uh, a brief review, but most of it will be new information uh, in our series this morning, and I pray it's a blessing to you. As we look at the past heavens environment, I want to talk about the inhabitants. The inhabitants of the past heaven, uh, relating it to Abraham's bosom, were only Old Testament saints. These are men and women that believed and trusted in God's promise of a Redeemer and yet never experienced or saw the Redeemer firsthand. They didn't know about Jesus Christ. They just knew that the Redeemer was promised and they put their faith in God and by virtue of that faith, the faith like Abraham had is that they were made righteous. And because of that, when they died, the Bible says that they went to this place in Sheol called Abraham's bosom. And the location, uh, if you're following along in your notes, is, is, is Sheol. It's also called Abaddon or the place of destruction. It's called the place of the dead and it's called the pit. And these aren't very attractive terms. But it's the place that, that God had ordained and it was in the subterranean regions of the earth. We don't know where, but that's what the Bible tells us in, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3. And so we find that this place is a subterranean uh, holding area of blessedness really for the believers and for unbelievers already the beginning uh, edges of a place of punishment, but it's not the full punishment uh, until the final days when God will actually throw Gehenna into the lake of fire. Now, what are the surroundings like in this place called Abraham's bosom? You might be surprised. It's a place of silence. And I've listed all these scriptures in your notes for you. I, I don't have time to read them all to you. Uh, you are students of the Word of God. I encourage you to be Bereans and look these up on your own. But I'm, I'm summarizing uh, what these texts say. But in these texts, we find that, that this place called Abraham's bosom is not a place of uh, exalting and glorious worship. It's a place of silence. It's a place that the Bible describes as a place of gloom and the shadow of death. It's a place void of God's praise. It's a place for rest, of rest for the weary, for the troubled soul. It's a place to just completely, it's, it's like it's over. And now the time of rest has come for them. The Bible describes it in uh, 1 Samuel and also in Isaiah as a place of almost semi-consciousness where, uh, for instance, Samuel is, is brought back by Saul using the witch from Endor. And, and his complaint to Saul is, why did you disturb me? Why did you disturb my place of rest? It was a place of, of, of reclining and repose and, and waiting for the next phase of God's eternal plan, which was the third heaven that we'll talk about in a moment. But it was a place of semi-consciousness, and yet it was a place under the authority of God. Now, the second phase of God's work in the heavenly realm is the third heaven. And we've talked about that last week at some length, and I won't repeat much of that. But the inhabitants are not only the Old Testament saints, but now the New Testament saints. Because the Bible tells us that when Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, he went down into the earthly regions and he brought a train of captives with him. And those captives were the men and women of the Old Testament who had put their faith in God and were in Abraham's bosom. And when Jesus died, he went down into that realm and brought those men and women out and along with the thief on the cross and they went to be in paradise because Jesus Christ himself was the firstborn from among the dead. 
No one could precede him into that heavenly realm. No man, no woman, no child could be in the presence of God because full righteousness wasn't made possible until the death of Christ. And because of that, no man or woman could be in the presence of God's throne. But once that death and resurrection of Jesus Christ took place, he took the captives with him and they were ushered right into the third heaven, into the very throne room of God. And from that point on, any saints that have died in the faith, including many Vea, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in the third heaven. And she is worshiping and glorifying God and just blown away at what she is seeing this morning. And I I felt a little bad when John called me yesterday morning at about 9 o'clock and said, Minnie just passed away. I said, thank you, Lord. And I just realized, well, wait a second, this is her son who's calling. And I'm like, John, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it that way. (laughs) But he understood exactly what I meant because this woman had been waiting her whole life to be in the presence of God. She was longing for it. She was looking forward to it. There was absolutely no fear in her whatsoever only a glorious expectation of the presence of God. And now she's there worshiping the King of Kings. This place is called the third heaven or often referred to as the paradise of God. Now what are the, what are the surroundings and the environment like there in this third heaven? Well, the Bible tells us, number one, is that it's a place where God is enthroned. If you look at Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, we have this glorious, glorious, fabulous, awesome descriptions of God in all of his majesty ruling and reigning with the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And so God is enthroned, unlike in the area of Abraham's bosom, God is enthroned and in his rightful place of reigning and ruling in this third heaven. It's also described for us in those same chapters of Revelation as a place of awesome worship of God and of the Lamb. And I love the descriptions about the four living creatures and the 24 elders and the hosts of heaven and they get started. It's like dominoes. One guy starts, the four living creatures go and then the 24 elders fall down and cast their crowns before the throne of God and the Lamb. And then the hosts of heaven just explode with worship and it's like a multitude, like rushing waters, like mighty rushing waters singing the praises and the glory of God in new song. It's an unbelievable description of this kingdom of God. And so we have a place where God is enthroned and where the believers are worshiping the king. But it's also a place of cheering on earthbound believers. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 says that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, uh, the writer encourages us to throw off everything that entangles, the sin that so easily entangles, and anything that hinders and to run our race with endurance that's marked out before us. A lot of people have thought that this cloud of witnesses refers to Hebrews chapter 11, all of the great heroes of the faith, and most certainly it does. But many commentators believe that it also refers to the Olympic Games or the Greek-Roman Games. Because of the word surround, the actual word in the Greek has to do with a people in a semicircle or in a circle observing or being spectators of something that's taking place. And the Bible seems to indicate, and I'll talk more about this in the weeks to come, that the hosts of heaven are actually an audience to what God is doing on the planet. 
It doesn't mean that God is, you know, each person is being scrutinized and watched for every little step, but it's kind of like our watching a war in a distant land. It's like watching Lebanon and what's unfolding in the Middle East right now. And so we, we stay in touch, you know, we read the news, we watch the news. We don't know all the individual stories personally, but there's this sense of this great unfolding battle that's occurring. And in the spiritual realm, what's happening is that the people of God in the heavenly realm are surrounding and watching and observing this great, powerful work of God in these last days. And the amazing thing is that we, we are the people that are participating in it right now. Others that have died in the faith have gone on, and they're with the Lord, and their battle is over. But our battle is not yet completed. And the Bible says, because we've got this, this cloud of witnesses who have proven faithful, they didn't stop, they didn't quit, they didn't cave in, they didn't give up, they continued to trust God and they continued to bear great fruit and they continued to advance the kingdom of God. Because of that witness, he says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, that gets our hearts focused on temporal things, that distracts us, that pulls us away from passionate love for God, that keeps us from walking in absolute obedience to him that gives us a desire for pleasing other people more than pleasing God. He said, cast that aside and run your race with endurance. It's a race that God has marked out for you. It's not my race. You don't have to run mine. I don't have to run yours. But God's grace is sufficient for your race, and it's sufficient for my race. And so we have the heavenly realm having already finished their race and now observing with joy and expectation and I believe that they're cheering and saying, you go, go, make it count, live for eternity. And they're there observing. They know what it, what, it, what, what, what it all adds up to. They know what the end game is. They know what the reward is. And they're cheering you on and saying, it's almost over. We're almost home. Make it count. Live for the king. You are citizens of that kingdom. Represent him well. I believe the Bible also indicates in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, that it's a place of petition. It's a place of making requests of God. Because in that verse, it tells us that the martyrs who were martyred for their faith because of the word of God and the testimony that they maintained, that they were martyred, and they're crying out to God and calling out in a loud voice, saying, How long, sovereign Lord, awesome and holy true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? So in heaven, we've got people praying. We've got saints that have gone on before us who were martyred, and they're crying out to God, and they're petitioning him in prayer. And they're communicating with him and saying, how long will it be until our blood is avenged? And so evidently, there's, a, there's an activity on our part, and the, the part of those that are in the kingdom of God, our part when we get there, of being a partner with God and saying, God, when will you bring these things to pass? When will all this be, be completed? And I'll talk more about this next week, but... Because of this verse and along with other verses I'll bring out in our study next week, uh, it seems to me that, that there is a, an awareness, a consciousness in heaven of these saints in the third heaven of what's going on on planet earth. They're not ignorant. They're not in the dark. They're not just up there singing and singing and singing, you know, nonstop. But they have a partnership. They care. They are observing. They are aware of this great battle unfolding and the great victory of the Lamb. It's also a place of waiting, Revelation 6, 11. 
because these very same martyrs are told to wait until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. So it's a place of waiting. This certainly doesn't describe, you know, when you hear people saying, how long until justice is served? And, and having people have to wait for something. That doesn't sound like the final heaven to me. And of course it's not. It's the third heaven. It's a place where the saints will be. It's a saint, the place where the Old Testament and New Testament saints and all the future uh, believers will be. And it's a place of already but not yet. The, the battle is already for them completed, but it's not completed for everyone yet. There needs to be a completion of this work before the final consummation of all things. And that brings us to the future heaven's environment. The future heaven's environment will be the glorious climax of God's eternal plan, bringing us back and even beyond his original work in the Garden of Eden. The inhabitants of this place will be the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, and the future saints who die in faith, trusting in Jesus Christ. The new location for this place, as we talked about last week, will be a new earth and the new heavens. And I gave you a lot of scriptural support for that last week. And let me give you another verse. In Matthew 5, 5, when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Does this begin to make more sense to you, why that verse is there? Because that is a part of our inheritance as the saints of the kingdom of God, is that we are going to inherit, along with Jesus Christ, this earth. It will be ours again uh, under the leadership and reign and rule of Jesus Christ. The surroundings are very interesting because the new earth is going to be a restoration of the Garden of Eden. It's described for us in Isaiah 64, 4, when it says, Since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you and his plans for those who love him. But here's something interesting because sometimes people have said, well, no eye has seen, no mind is perceived, we just can't conceive any of these things, so we must not be permitted to even think on these things. But the interesting thing in the text is it says, since ancient times, no one has heard. In other words, previous to ancient times, people did know, and people did hear, and people did perceive. And that couple was Adam and Eve. They did know. They did perceive. They did see. They did hear. They experienced the plan of God. But not since ancient times have we been able to fully wrap our arms around the glorious future that God has for us. When God made the Garden of Eden, he gave man and woman and mankind four precious, precious gifts. The first was life. The second was a righteous character. The third was a beautiful home. And the fourth was dominion over the earth. And when man sinned, man forfeited all four of those privileges. They forfeited life. They forfeited a righteous character. They forfeited their beautiful presence and, and domain with God. And they forfeited their privilege of ruling and reigning and having dominion over the earth. The first three chapters of Genesis describe the fall of man. But the last two chapters of Genesis describe the glorious return of life Righteous character, a beautiful home, and dominion over the entire earth and the heavens as well. I want to spend the balance of our time talking about this new city because on the new city, on this new planet, a new city, the celestial city is going to come down from heaven. It's called the New Jerusalem. It's also called the city of God. 
It's called the Zion from above. These are all uh, names or aliases or other ways of describing this place called the new heaven on earth, the city that God is preparing for us. We're told in the Bible in, in Hebrews 11 that the city's architect and builder is God himself. And Jesus in John 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 2, tells us exactly that he is the one that's preparing a place for them. And I don't know if you remember much about Jesus, but he was a carpenter. The guy was a good, skilled carpenter. And he has been spending the last 2,000 years preparing a place for the saints. Personally, I don't think it took him that long. But the Bible says that he went to prepare a place. In fact, in the, uh, in the Greek, uh, in, the, uh, in the verses that I'm reading from in Hebrews, um, that God has already prepared. In Hebrews 11:16, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared in the past tense, a city for them. So it's my contention and belief that this city is already completed. What are the city's dimensions? I want to talk about this for a minute. In your Bibles, uh, uh, in the Greek, it's actually 12,000 stadia uh, uh, deep, wide, and high. It forms a perfect cube. In our uh, measurements today, in, um, in miles, it would be 1,400 miles cubed. It's an enormous area. It's uh, 1,960,000 square miles. And if you consider the cubic volume of this city, it's 27,440,000,000 cubic miles in, in, in its uh, content. It's enormous. My wife asked me last night, boy, 1,400 miles seems kind of big just for the footprint. Let's just look at the two-dimensional, not the three-dimensional part of it, but just the two-dimensional. 1,400 by 1,400 miles. What, and it comes down, and, and the city center is Jerusalem. So she asked me, what does that fill up in the Middle East? And I'd never really thought about it. So I broke out my Bible and got the little chart and measured it right as I was coming down to church last night as we were driving in the car. She was driving. I wasn't, uh, so just in case some of you. I was talking on the cell phone and working on my pine pollard at the same time while I was steering. And, uh, and I started measuring all this. And as I measured it, I was really astonished to discover that the northern border is Turkey, the southern border is the very southern part of Egypt. These are all very important biblical uh, uh, historic areas uh, regionally and geographically to the kingdom of God. And then from the east to west, on the east side, you've got Iraq, the, the, really the, the beginning of mankind. This is where the Garden of Eden was. This is where Abraham came from the, from, uh, from the Ur of Chaldees. And then it goes all the way to the Mediterranean where the gospel spread throughout Europe. And so this footprint is enormous. It, it, it envelops the whole Middle East. It just covers it all up, all the places that, are, that hate Israel. <laughs> I, just gonna, I never thought of it until just now, but the city's just going to squish them all. No, it won't. It, no, it really won't I, it, because they'll all be gone. Um, but it was kind of fun to think of just for a minute. Poof, you know. I like the landing. But this, this enormous celestial city is going to come to rest in this area of the Middle East. And to put it in perspective, 1,400 miles is the distance between the northern border of Mexico and the southern border of Canada, to give you an idea of the size. It's bigger than India. It's 10 times as big as France and Germany put together. It's 40 times bigger than England. It's 450 times bigger than New York City. And it's 3,564 times bigger than the island of Kauai. That's how much just the footprint. And then you've got a cubit because we're talking about 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by now 1,400 miles high. Researchers over the years have predicted and 
estimated that about 40, 40 billion people have lived on the planet since Adam and Eve. They've also said that it's possible, and they're predicting a fairly high number, but it's possible that during the millennial reign of Christ on earth, that we, we've already talked about in the last couple of times, that during that time of the millennial reign, before God establishes the, the new earth and the new heavens and his new kingdom here on earth, that they may be up to, to another 40 billion people that will live on the planet. And then they figured that they're probably here and there, probably another 20 billion, either dying in childbirth or dying uh, of disease at a young age or being aborted or whatever, that there may be another 20 billion, which brings us to a grand total of 100 billion people that have potentially lived in the past and potentially will live in the future before the coming of Christ. Now, if you take that number and you figure that uh, Jesus' words saying that, that the way is narrow to the kingdom of God and few are those that find it, and you take the, the teaching of the sower and, um, and I, I'm kind of stepping out on a bit of a limb here uh, because these, the parables are not meant to, to say that, okay, 25% were the seed on the, on the path and 25%, it's not like that necessarily. But, but the principle in Jesus' parable of the sower is not very many of these seeds actually took root, but the ones that did bore a great harvest. So let's say 20% of these 100 billion people actually were born again, God-fearing God-serving, God-obeying, God-loving, God-pleasing believers. If just 25% of this celestial city that God has created, this enormous cube of glory and beauty, if just 25% of that was used for our mansions, our place, the, God, the place that God has prepared for us, and all the rest of it was for infrastructure and for buildings and public buildings and parks and all the things that I believe would be a part of that kingdom, if only 25% is used for actual housing for us, this is the amount of space that the Christian individually will have to work with. One-third of a cubic mile will be your part in that celestial kingdom. That equates to 71 cubic acres of space for you. The average house uh, lot on Kauai is somewhere between 10 and 15,000 square feet. Listen to the numbers that you will have for your mansion, 3,097,600 square feet for you. Isn't that amazing? The, 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 the numbers of this place and the statistics of, this, of the size and the magnitude of this place that God is creating is absolutely astonishing. Some of the characteristics of the city, and John begins us in, in chapter 21, verse 10, by saying, or verse 11, that's saying, when he saw this city coming down, because the angel uh, allowed him to see this city uh, coming down out of heaven from God and it says it shone like the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel like jasper, clear as crystal. That's the description that John, the apostle, to the best of his ability, could describe this celestial city. We're told in scripture that it has a wall around its entire circumference that runs 5,600 miles in length. It's got 12 gates three on each side, north, south, east, and west, that correlate with the Old Testament tabernacle, three gateways with Solomon's temple, 12 gateways to each, three on each side of this temple wall. And the Bible tells us, interestingly, that there are going to be 12 angels, one at each of these gates. But the Bible goes on and tells us, and we'll talk about this more in the weeks to come, but the gates will never be shut. 
because nobody's going to have to be checked there at all. There's no security whatsoever because only those whose names are written in the Lamb Book of Life will be allowed in the city in the first place. So these angels are going to be there. The Bible doesn't tell us their activity, but this is my guess. I think that they're going to be greeters. I think they're going to be saying, well, hello, and fill in your name every time you come in and out of the city. And the one thing I want to clarify is that this celestial city is not the, it, we're not going to be stuck in this box. This is just our home. This is our landing pad. This is our residence. This is the place of the king. But the gates are wide open. And God is going to use us to rule and reign over the entire earth. And I believe not only over the earth, but over the galaxies. And I shared with you a week ago that, that earlier on in my Christian life, when I thought about the galaxies, I thought nobody's going to ever even explore these. We're never going to get there before everything is completed. So why did God bother making these galaxies? And my, my thinking at that time was that, well, it was for his pleasure. He just enjoys it himself. But I think I may have been wrong. I think it may be because God has prepared them for us so that in these new bodies that we'll have, and we'll talk about that next week, that we will have the capacity to explore every square inch of this magnificent creation, and it may never be explored fully. I don't think it will be. For all of eternity, we will never reach the far corners of it, and I believe it's not only for God's pleasure, but I believe that God has also created it for your pleasure. Isn't that awesome? To think of a God that's so generous. The Bible tells us that this wall is 200 feet thick. It's constructed of jasper, precious stone. And it's got 12 foundations with the names of the 12 apostles written on it. And it's decorated with these incredibly beautiful stones that the Bible describes for us uh, in the book of Revelation chapter 21 and 22. The Bible tells us that the city is constructed of gold. It's not just the streets that are paved of gold. It tells us that this gold is so pure and so refined that it's clear as crystal. You know, theoretically, it's possible to refine gold until it's transparent. But we don't have the technology or the ability to do it. But here in the kingdom of God, we've got gold that is so purified and so refined that it's clear as crystal. And it says in Revelation 21, 21, referring to the streets of gold, that they were like transparent glass. It's also a place that the Bible describes as being prepared for believers. And that's when Jesus said in John 14, is that don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. I prepared a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I, if I weren't going to prepare a place, I wouldn't be calling you. But because I am going, I am going to come and you're going to come and be with me forever. And I like Jesus' words in Matthew 19, 28. And uh, Jesus says that the renewal of all things, all things, not just our bodies, but the renewal of all of creation, all of the universe, all of the earth, he says, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. You remember the story about Job? Job lost everything in a day. And in the end of the story, God doubled everything for him with the exception of his children, and he got the same number of children. But everything else, his flocks, his herds, his, everything he owned, doubled because of God's blessing. But here it says that any man that is willing to forsake this kingdom 
and willing to fix their eyes on the kingdom to come, that when they live that kind of a life, he says, if you've lost anything in this life, if your Christian commitment has cost you anything, if, if you have been deprived of anything in this life because of your testimony and your faithfulness and your obedience to Christ, God says, I will give you a hundred times as much in the kingdom to come and salvation to boot. That's the generous heart of God. And so much of this has to do with not just the city, but the residence that God has planned for you. We're going to have an eternity in heaven, and I believe we're going to have ample opportunity on an individual basis 